Okay, we're in Luke chapter 10. Believe it or not, we made it. Luke chapter 10, Rob Hooks was kind of laughing because, uh, you know, he was only gone a year and he said, yeah, I had this bulletin from a year ago and you, you were just in chapter nine. He says, it took you a whole year. Oh, well, there was a lot of good stuff in chapter nine. I mean, what do you expect? I figured it out. I actually preached 20 sermons in chapter nine. It was three verses a sermon. That's plenty. But in Luke chapter 10, in these first 12 verses, God gives us a little manual for how to harvest souls. Now, I don't know about some of you. I'm kind of an instruction guy. I like reading the instructions. Um, I just, you know, like instructions. I don't know. Um, why go through the pain of trying to figure it out? You know, you get that piece of furniture and you think, ah, I don't need to read the instructions. You start putting it together and then afterwards you realize this isn't working. And then you are forced to read the instructions and then you have to take everything apart and put it back together the right way. Uh, that's not very fun. And some of you are not very mechanical. It can be really frustrating. You know, you, you get your cell phone. And uh, it's a new cell phone. It does a lot of things. You just don't know how. And, uh, you know, you try and figure it out and figure it out. Finally, you get out the book. And you do it by the book. And then you finally say, oh, that's how it's done. So, yeah, we have options. We can, you know, either use the instruction book and, and get it right. Or we can try and guess if we want. But, you know, when you're a Christian, you have to use God's instruction book. There's no option. You don't get to wing it. You don't get to invent your own doctrines, invent your own way of getting to heaven, invent your own way of doing what God tells you to do in his word. You have to read God's instruction book, and then you have to do it like God says. Because we're not talking about, you know, furniture and entertainment centers and cell phones and things like that. We're talking about the souls, the eternal souls of men and women and the difference between heaven and hell. And so we have to go to God's word and find out what God says. And the mindset of every Christian, whenever you're doing any ministry, whenever you're going to do anything that relates to ministry, your first thought should always be, what does the Bible say? I mean, that is, it's got to be that way. Not, oh, I heard some other church was doing it this way. Oh, I read a book that said, oh, let's try this. Ah, God tells us everything we need for life and godliness in his word. And yes, there's freedom to move around within the parameters of God's instruction, but we can never go outside of that. When God says preaching is how he wants Things to happen, we gotta preach. I don't care how popular video is and television is and podcasting. You gotta preach. Because God says so. And so why the world will say, well, preaching is out of style. Well, then we're all out of style. Now as we come to Luke chapter 10 in these first 24 verses, Luke describes for us the sending out of the 70 disciples. In verses 1 through 12, we have the appointment and charge of the 70. And then in verses 13 through 16, Jesus threatens judgment and those who do not repent from the preaching and proclamation of the 70. In verses 17 through 20, we have the report of the 70 after they return from 
healing the sick and proclaiming the kingdom. And then in verses 21 through 25, we have the sovereignty of God in salvation and the privileges of the gospel ministry explained. And so please follow along as we look at the appointment and charge of the 70 in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them out in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if... A man of peace is there. Your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whoever, whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the day, in that day for Sodom than for that city. So this is the text. And If it sounds a little familiar, it's because it is familiar. It's real similar to Luke chapter 9, 1 through 11, where we have the sending out of the 12. There are a whole bunch of parallels. When you compare what Jesus told the 12 and what he told the 70, both groups were, were appointed by him or called by him. Both groups were given power to do miracles. Both groups were sent out. Both groups were sent out in pairs. Both groups proclaimed the kingdom. Both groups were told not to take provisions. Both groups were told the worker is worthy of his wages. Both groups were told that they were being sent out like sheep in the midst of wolves. You'd think that put it just an end to the movement right there. Both groups were told to leave a blessing of peace on those who received them. Both groups were instructed to take back their greeting. If not received, both groups were to stay at one place in each city and not move around. Both groups were instructed to shake the dust off their feet in protest against those who would not receive them. And both groups were told that it would be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom than that city that rejected them. Now, That's a lot of similarities. And right here, it tells us something really great. And that is, is what Jesus told the 12 and how they were to do evangelism was the same thing he told the 70 how to do evangelism, which tells us this is not just for the 12 and it's not just for the 70. It's for everyone. This text contains God's manual For harvesting souls. And we're going to see what God says. Now when I sit down and I'm kind of going through the text. I can start writing down principles. And I'm looking at the passage. And I actually came up with 12 different steps. Now this is not to be confused with your typical 12 step program. 
Uh, these are just, they come directly from the text, as we shall see. And one of the things that happened is, as I looked and I noticed that I think like five or six of them, almost half of them had, uh, had peas. I just happened to write down peas. And I thought, oh, I wonder if I could make them all peas. You know, I'm not usually don't spend my time alliterating. To me, I've got other things to do. But I thought, you know, some people like it and I could humor them this once. (laughs) And so we are going to encounter 12 perfect points proposed (laughs) in this pericope that we can put into practice for proselytizing pagans. (laughs) So that's our proposition. Point number one is pursue God's purpose in choosing you look at verse one the text says now after this stop there real quick after what well jesus is no longer ministering in and around galilee remember he's leaving he's heading south towards jerusalem he's going to wander around in between jerusalem and galilee in that area of samaria and north of samaria and south of samaria we see this in Luke 9:51 if you look there where it says when the days were approaching for his ascension he was determined to go to Jerusalem if you look down to verse 56 in chapter 9 they went to another village if you look in verse 57 as they were going along the road so we see Jesus is traveling and of course after verse 57 Luke says And these are three common excuses that Jesus received when he was going about calling people to follow him. So we kind of have these three excuses, which are representative of the whole batch of excuses that men will give for not following Jesus. Then we get to chapter 10, verse 1, where now Jesus is showing, in contrast to those who didn't follow him, 70 who were willing to follow him without excuses. So look at verse 1 again. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others. The first step we see in verse 1 is that the Lord appoints his servants. And the word appoints might be translated assigned or called into office. God chooses you, he saves you, and he does it for a purpose. We aren't saved merely for fire insurance. Being a Christian is not about, yeah, you know, I don't want to go to hell, so I'll come, I'll pay my premiums to God by going to church periodically, and then when I die, I get to escape hell. That's not what Christianity is about. There are some people who don't want God controlling every area of their life. They want God to save them from hell, but that's all. They want to do their own thing, live their own life, but die and escape hell. Well, that doesn't happen. You know, you, a college student is getting ready to, uh, you know, sign up for next semester. He's talking to his friends. They say, oh man, don't take a class from, you know, Professor Hughes. (laughs) He gives a lot of homework. And so they don't. They take a class from somebody else because they don't want all the homework. Well, that's fine if you're in college, but it's not fine if you're a Christian. There's only one professor, God, and he gives life homework assignments and they're hard and you have to do them. There's no escaping. You don't get to say, well, I'm going to, you know, choose this and I'm going to choose that. Listen. You're either going to follow Christ or not. Either deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus or not. There's no picking and choosing. 
The scriptures make it clear when God calls someone to saving faith, he calls them into ministry. And, you know, I wish I could just erase the centuries of misleading jargon that has brought us to the place where people today, but I I have to tell you, I'm not the minister. We are the ministers. Everybody who's a follower of Jesus is a minister. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. You are to minister. We have already seen in our series in the church, all of us have spiritual gifts. All of us to employ those gifts and serving one another. That's a ministry. You're a minister. Bingo. It's not just the guy who preaches who is the minister. That's a holdover from the Catholic church where the priest was seen as the minister, the representative, the conduit between the people and God. No, we are a kingdom of priests. We all have access to God through faith in Christ. All of us have spiritual gifts. All of us, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean we all need to be missionaries or all need to be pastors. You can be a housewife. You can be, you know, just whatever, an engineer, whatever. It doesn't matter. Whatever you do, you're ministering all day. You're a representative for Jesus, an ambassador. Wherever you go, whatever you say, people are watching and they're seeing what it means to be a Christian. We love to quote texts like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you know, for by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. Oh, it's so wonderful. What a great verse. Free grace, not a result of works. God saves us. Grace, grace, grace. And But we, a lot of times you don't want to say the next verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. You see, you are saved by grace to do those acts of ministry, which God has prepared before the foundation of the world that you would walk in them. Paul tells Titus that Christ redeemed us from every lawless deed to make for himself, a purify for himself, a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Titus 2.14. Zealous for good deeds. You know that word zealous? That means you've got a fire under you. It means you have passion. That doesn't mean you're stagnant, slothful, sporadic. And you're excited about God. You're excited about the ministry, man. You're just wound up. Yeah. Zealous for good deeds. Like David, when he saw Goliath, he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who is taunting the armies of the living God? That's zeal. That's zeal. Or in Acts, when they told Peter and John, that they had to stop preaching the gospel in Acts 4, 19 and 20. Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking the things that we have seen and heard, and they didn't. We're not stopping. Zeal, passion. God saved you to be zealous ministers. People of Calvary Bible Church, you need to pursue God's purpose for saving you. You are not saved to escape hell only. That's just one of the benefits. 
You were called to be an ambassador, a follower, a minister of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, would you call yourself a servant of Jesus? Well, are you serving? Are you serving? We don't want to be broken light bulbs and flat tires and pens without ink. We want to be functioning for Jesus, using his gracious resources to give him glory because we love him. We like serving him. It's wonderful to be involved in ministry. Life is short and every day brings you closer to the grave. Soon your opportunity to proclaim the gospel will be gone. So don't squander your talents. Don't bury them in the ground. And don't say, oh, I'll minister tomorrow because tomorrow may never come. God wants you to zealously pursue his purpose for saving you, which is due to do the gospel ministry. Secondly, partner with others in the gospel ministry. Not only should you pursue God's purpose in choosing you, but you should also partner with others in the gospel ministry. Look at the middle of verse 1. And he sent them out in pairs. Now, why do you suppose he did that? He sent them out in pairs. Why not send them out individually? That seems like it would, um, you'd get a lot more coverage if you sent them out individually, right? You know, two coals, though, will keep each other burning when one by itself will go out. Teamwork in the gospel ministry creates a synergism. This is the first reason why God called them out and sent them out in pairs. Because of a spiritual synergism. Now, if you don't know that word, it means this. A synergism is some event where the effect of the event is more than the sum of its individual parts. It's when one plus one equals three. Or four or five. That is a synergism. Some of you who are married know what I'm talking about. You know, at first you're married, you're trying to figure out, you know, how to love each other and whatever, and pretty soon you start working like a team. And all of a sudden one takes these tasks because they're good at it, another takes these other tasks because they're good at it. You start serving each other, you start enabling each other, and pretty soon both of you are able to do more ministry together than you could individually i could never do all that i do if my wife didn't do all the things she does for me i just couldn't do it i'd have to probably cut down by a third why because we work as a team the same thing with her there is a synergism there and so all ministry is that way when one is weak another is strong when one is kind of doubting another's faith is just great non-flinching when one's tired, another is rested. That, that's, how, that's why. Solomon, in his great wisdom, put it this way in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, who can resist him? A cord of three strands is not easily torn apart. That's the whole point there is there is more power 
in teamwork. You know, missions agencies often require at least two people to go out in the field, sometimes teams of people. Why? Because they know from experience, you send one person out there, they start meeting with oppositions, they get discouraged, they get burnt out, and they come back. And all that training and all that effort's gone. When you think about your life, are you timid about sharing your faith? Are you, are you know you need to get involved in ministry, but you're just, you just can't seem to get it together? But find somebody else who can't get it together. Find somebody else who is, has their act together and says, I need to partner with you. That's what discipleship is all about. That's what the one anothering is all about. So you come together with somebody who is already involved or who also wants to get involved. And together, you both do more than individual. Individually. When you look in that book of Acts, you see Peter partnered with, with John and Paul partnered with Barnabas and Silas and, and Barnabas partnered with with um, Mark and Timothy with Silas and Erastus. They, they, they went out in twos. They did what we're reading in this text. So don't be a lone ranger. Don't be a you know ministry island, a one-man show. Get somebody else involved. And if you're already doing ministry and you're doing it by yourself, then get somebody else to partner with you so you can do more than individually you could. You will probably discover very quickly that two heads are not only better than one, they're better than two. The second reason I believe Jesus sent them out in pairs is to present a legally binding witness. According to Deuteronomy 19.15 and Matthew 18.16 and a bunch of other texts, that if you were going to condemn somebody, it had to be in the testimony of two or more witnesses. Well, when you look down in the context and we get to verses 12 and following, Jesus is going to threaten judgment. And so as he's sending these men out to proclaim the gospel... He is also going to tell them that judgment is coming on those who do not receive their message. And so this is a crime against God's grace to reject the gospel. It's the white throne judgment. After Jesus comes back, after the end of the millennium, uh, the dead in the seas, the dead in the grave, all the dead are raised. They all stand before God and there is Christ and his voice is like the sound of thunder, like the sound of many waters. And he calls for some unrepentant sinner to come before his throne of grace. And he looks to an angel and says, open the book and read the charges. And then the angel reads the charges. Then the Lord calls forth a couple of the saints. Maybe you're one of those. And he says, did you or did you not share the gospel with this rebel? Promising him eternal life by grace through faith in my death, burial and resurrection. Did you not plead with him to repent? Did you not warn him of judgment? Did you not tempt him with the pleasures of heaven, the forgiveness of sin, and the free gift of life everlasting? Did you not tell him of God's love for sinners as demonstrated by my death on the cross for him? And what will those witnesses say? Lord, you know all things. You know it's true. And that is when Jesus will say, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the lake of fire. And it will be 
on the account of two or more witnesses, and every fact will be confirmed. Now, God doesn't need any witnesses. He knows all things, and his witness is perfect. But he's going to have them. And it's really scary to think that you could come to a church like this and hear the gospel over and over Sunday after Sunday and leave unrepentant because every Sunday you hear the gospel, you have all these witnesses against you. That yes, I was there. Yes, I heard it. And so we need to realize that God wants us to go out in pairs, not only for the strength, but to write a witness against those who will not repent. Third, Plan to give people the gospel more than once. Look at the end of verse 1, where we read that Jesus sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. Now, why would he do that? I mean, think about that. If Jesus is already going to go to a city, then why send somebody there ahead of him to do what he's going to do? You know, the disciples are given power to heal. And they knew the gospel and how to proclaim it. And so why, if they were going to go to a city and heal the sick and proclaim the gospel, would Jesus need to come after? It seems kind of redundant, doesn't it? But it's not. It is redundant. And purposefully so. I worked for a carpenter in high school framing houses. He would love to torment me. He'd say, Jack, come here. I want to show you something. And I'd say, what? And he'd pull out a three and a quarter inch, 16 penny framing nail. And he'd tap it into the side of a stud. And then with one blow, he would pound it all the way in. And I'd go, oh, I can do that. It's like, if he can do that, I can do that. So, you know, every break I'd be trying to pound some poor stud full of nails i could never knock one all the way in it was always sticking out i would use both hands and i couldn't do it i think man what is the deal i mean he was only using a little 20 ounce framing hammer it wasn't this huge hammer he was a little guy so i'd say hey well how do you do that he'd say you got to hold your tongue right <laughs> then he'd look at me and say you know it's a lot quicker if you only hit the nail once And to this day, I still can't do it. The only way I can nail a nail in all the way once is if I have my nail gun. (laughs) You know, that's kind of how it is with the gospel, though. For most people, one blow of the gospel isn't enough. You know, you, there are, sure, there's those times where somebody has never heard the gospel, they don't know anything about it, They hear it for the first time. God softens their heart. They break down, repent, give their life to Christ and are saved. But that is like the rare instance. Usually you got to strike them multiple times. And if you've been here for the baptism testimonies, you hear people say, yeah, so-and-so shared the gospel with me. And several years later, another person. And several years, another person. And sometimes it's so fun to just hear the testimony, how God just rains down the gospel on them. You know, people said, yeah, everywhere I went, man, it was the gospel. You know, my neighbor's preaching to me. And then, you know, I went here, my co-worker's preaching to me. And then somebody else is telling me how Jesus loved me, how he died on the cross. And I turn on the radio and there's some, I never listen to All of a sudden, I just get stuck there. And this guy's telling me to repent and give my life to Jesus. I just couldn't escape. They just hunted, God just hunted me down. It just struck me and struck me and struck me until finally the gospel went in. 
The Holy Spirit opened my heart and I was saved. And that's how it works. And so, you know, if you share, if you share the gospel, especially your people say, yeah, you know, I shared the gospel with my brother, but you know, he didn't want to hear it. Hit him again. (laughs) Hit him again. You know, disciples would go into a town, maybe stay there a week. They'd sit there at the public street and they would talk to people and preach the gospel and crowds would gather and some people would hear the gospel once or twice or three or four. Or maybe they'd be there all seven days and hear them do it every single day. And some would hear it all every time and they wouldn't repent. The disciples would move on. But during the interval between when they left and when Jesus was coming... The word of God would begin to work in their heart and they would be more and more convicted about their sin. They'd be more and more convicted that, man, I'm going to hell. Those guys did miracles. This must be of God. And Jesus would come with his 12 and many more would come to repentance. And so we learned that one of the strategies for evangelizing is do it more than once. A lot of times people need more than one blow of the truth before the truth sinks in. So be persistent. Keep on sharing the gospel. Never give up. So pursue God's purpose in saving you. Partner with others in ministry. Plan to share the gospel with people. And fourth, pray for more labors to proclaim the gospel. Look at verse 2. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Jesus tells them, man, there is a great harvest in Israel. It's just burgeoning. It's bountiful. It's a bumper crop. But man, the labors, they are few. Now, remember, Jesus is leaving the area of Galilee, which had quite a population. So we're talking about the area south of the Sea of Galilee and north of Jerusalem. Think about that. How many people were in there? Probably just a couple hundred thousand people. That's not very many people, is it? And you think, well, that's, you know, especially if Jesus is sending them to cities he's going to go. I mean, he can't go to that many cities. So you're thinking, well, 70 seems like pretty many. But Jesus sees them as few You know, farmers have lost their entire crop because they missed the window of harvest. I used to drive by this field. It's alfalfa guy, farmer. He'd he'd grow these big lush fields of alfalfa. And and, uh, at the end of summer, right before fall was coming, he would cut it and they'd stack it into these loose rows. And then after three or four days of drying the sun, they'd flip it over and let it dry a little bit more. And then they'd come back with a hay baler and they'd bale it all up. And then they'd pick it up, pick up the bales and stack them in the barn for feed. Well, this one time he had cut his hay and he had turned it over and it was just getting ready to bale. And then it rained for two weeks straight. And all that hay molded so it was good for nothing except to be tilled back into the ground he lost the whole crop and so when the window of opportunity for harvesting comes you have to take action when jesus says pray to the lord beseech the lord to send out labors that word send out means to send them out in urgency in haste hurry Because this is the window of opportunity. 
Every day people are, are dying and dropping into hell. Take action. Because if you miss the window of opportunity, we're not talking about a crop here. We're talking about souls. So Jesus says, send out laborers, not loafers. Laborers, not lukewarm professing Christians who never tell anybody about Jesus, but hard toiling laborers. Because 70 gospel preachers is not enough for a couple hundred thousand people. There are 18 million people in Los Angeles. 18 million in the greater Los Angeles area. Now, how many think of those are Christians, born again believers who love Jesus? One million? Two million? Let's just say, for exaggerating sense, there were nine million. Nine million on fire believers. I wish to God it were true. Would you be fine with having nine million people damned to hell? Think about it. Would you consider that a good harvest to get half the crop out? You know, even if you're involved in ministry, even if you're doing what you can, you know, you got a job, you got a wife, you got a kid, you got to mow the lawn or whatever, and you've got all these things in your life and you're doing what you can, you're serving, you're playing your part in the church. You know what? It's just not enough. And so what are you going to do? Well, you can't do anything. So what do you do? You beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out more laborers. It should be one of those things that's just, you know, etched with a diamond stylus on your mind or put at the very top of your prayer journal so that every time you pray, Lord, send out more laborers. We need more laborers. He commands you to do it. Do it. It's one of the strategies God gives us. For doing evangelism. Fifth, look at verse three. Jesus says, Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. <laughs> what does this mean? I think it's pretty clear. Wolves eat lambs. When you go about doing your master's business, what are you going to find? You're going to find that people don't like you, people slander you. People gossip about you. You might not get promoted. You might lose a job. You might lose relationships and friendships and things like that. Why? Because when you you live for Christ, ungodly men and ungodly women will devour you any way they can because they don't like Jesus in you. Recently, I was sent a series of pictures taken by a hunter from a tree stand. He happened to be up in this tree stand just scoping things out and a moose came along. And so the first frame shows a moose and these two wolves in the lower right-hand corner of the picture. The next frame shows the moose with about 10 wolves, the whole wolf pack attacking it. In the next frame, they're having moose dinner. Now, a moose weighs 1,500 pounds. Now, what do you think a wolf would do? A whole wolf pack to a sheep, a lamb, a little lamb. One wolf could take that out in a second. And Jesus says, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, why does he do that? Does Jesus have some sort of like suicide complex? You know, is there glory in Custer's last stand? Remember the Alamo! Fight to death! 
you know, I mean, is that, is that at all about, you know, get, get, get yourself glory and, you know, fight to the bloody end. I mean, is that what it about? Is, is there, or is there something else? I think we have read Hebrews 11. Didn't Samson give his life in defeating the enemies of God? Didn't Jephthah have to sacrifice his daughter? He's there in the text as this person of great faith. What are these people of great faith? Well, what happens? Are they always just, they're the victors and, you know, pomp and circumstance and a big parade of people coming into the town saying, oh, these people are godly. They followed God. The author of Hebrews describes them like this in Hebrews eleven thirty six to 38. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. In the sight of the world, losers. That's how the world sees them. Oh, bunch of wimpy, mealy mouth Christian losers. God's estimation, men and women who were so great that this world didn't even deserve to have the pleasure of their acquaintance. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Jesus is telling you in this text, if you want to be his disciple, the wolves are waiting. But it kind of begs for a question. I don't know about you, but I thought of this. Why would you do that? If you have the good shepherd and the shepherd's there to protect the sheep, then why would you send the sheep out into the wolves? I mean, don't you wonder about that? Doesn't that seem kind of contradictory? What's going on here? Is Jesus just sitting around going, I'm sending you out there. Look at him getting ripped up. I mean, is that, you know, some sort of sadistic pleasure? You know, most of us in North America don't realize it, but more Christians have been martyred for the cause of Christ in the last hundred years than the previous 19 centuries combined. Do you know that? All the people who were killed, all in the early church and Nero and the Roman persecutions and the, the persecutions at the end of the Dark Ages and the Reformations, all those thousands and thousands are slaughtered. All those 19 centuries, add them all up, and more people have been killed for the cause of Christ in the last hundred years. Most people don't realize that. That every day around the world, today, in our time, people are dying for Jesus. Go to persecution.com, sign up to their prayer letter, and just get a clue. Muslims, communists, Hindu-dominated countries are killing Christians for the mere fact that they're Christians and they want to follow Jesus. That's it. That's their crime. But why do you suppose God would allow this? Why doesn't he intervene? Why doesn't he protect them? Why does he send them out as sheep or lambs in the midst of wolves? Well, sometimes he does protect them. Sometimes he doesn't. And why would he call you to suffer for him? Why would you have to lose your job? Or you be isolated from your family who you love or that friend who you've had for many years because you shared the gospel with them. They got mad. They don't want to talk to you anymore. Why? Well, there's 
several reasons. The big one is, is that it glorifies God. It glorifies God. It's like, well, how is that? Let me tell you. Here's five things. These aren't all of them. Persecution, first of all, demonstrates to the world how much the followers of Christ love him. Remember what Jesus said? No greater love has any man than this, than that he what? He laid down his life for a friend. When you go out there and you're doing gospel ministry and you're suffering for the cause of Jesus, what are you saying? I love Jesus. I love Jesus enough to suffer for him. Now, is that a good thing that the world sees your love for Jesus? Yes. Secondly, persecution demonstrates the grace of God in a believer's life. When the world is watching you and the world is watching you suffer in a God honoring way and they're looking at you and they're going, man, look at that person. You're like the centurion who looks up at Jesus dying on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. And he says, surely this was the son of God. Why? Because he saw the grace of God in Christ, his kindness, his love for his killers. And there are so many stories in church history of people who are being burned at the stake, singing hymns. They sit in this, they get tied up the stake. They're singing hymns to God. There's no cursing. There's no stressing out. There's no gnashing of teeth. There's no anger. There's no bitterness. They just entrust themselves to God and die this incredible death. And people see that and they're so blown away at the grace of God in that person's life. They repent and give their life to Christ. So persecution is good. Because it demonstrates God's grace through those who are being persecuted. Third, persecution helps us share in the sufferings of Christ. You know, when you suffer like Jesus did, but always to a lesser degree, you remember that. You know, you do something, you're trying to do what's right, you're trying to share the gospel, you're trying to minister to somebody, and and they get mad at you or whatever it is, you know. It, It just, you realize, man... Jesus went through a lot more than this for me. Jesus, Jesus was persecuted his whole ministry and finally falsely tried and scourged. They made him carry his cross through the town. They put that crown of thorns on his head. They nailed him to a cross. It's like, man, he must really love me. And it just gives you this affection because you have shared in the sufferings of Christ. You have suffered for the cause of Jesus. And it makes you love Jesus more. Because in suffering you realize what he went through but overly more to bring you to salvation. Is this good? Yes. For persecution brings blessing to believers. Jesus said in Matthew 5:11, "Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me." He says, "Blessed are you. I give you blessing. If you suffer for me, I am going to bless you." Is that good? Who does not want more blessing from Jesus? 5. Persecution places you in good company right after Jesus said what he did in Matthew 5:11 and verse 12 he says rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you you were in good company i mean who wants to be in the company of daniel isaiah jeremiah david jesus paul i do so you're in good company with the most godly men and women who have ever lived. You know, there are policemen, firemen, military personnel who put their life on the line every single day. 
to save people from physical death. And while a few of them do it out of love, most of them do it for money. Daredevils risk their life for money, fame, to entertain people. Now, don't you think it would be worth it to suffer, to save people from eternal hell fire? Jesus says, I send you out. And this is the kicker. If the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep, and if the good shepherd sends you out, you know his grace will be sufficient for you. He's never going to send you out and abandon you. He always gives you grace to do everything he calls you to do. And you never have to worry about being out there. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. And even if they kill you, you'll live. You'll live for eternity with him in glory. And the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to you if you know Jesus. So you need to pursue God's purpose in saving you. Partner with others in ministry. Plan to share the gospel with people more than once. Pray for more laborers to be sent out into the harvest. Prepare to be persecuted. And sixthly, place your trust in God to provide for you. Look at verse 4. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes. Now just think about that. You know, in a modern context, you're going to go... Jesus says, I, I'm going to send you out. I want you to take a, a trip around California, around the state. Uh, don't take any gas money. Don't do any maintenance on your car. No suitcase, no shampoo, no toothbrush. Just take what you're wearing. Get out of Dodge. That'd be kind of, you know, a little stressy. It's like, well, what happens when we run out of gas? We'll take care of you. I will take care of you. When I send somebody out and do my ministry, I always provide for them. You know, I have students all the time in seminary come up to me and say, you know, I want to talk to you about candidating and, you know, I'm thinking of going here and I'm thinking of going there and they have these opportunities and they're always, you know, they're getting ready to get out there because they've been scraping by as seminary students and I just can't wait to get paid on a regular basis and have a consistent income. And one student, you know, would come up to me and say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of, of taking a, a, a church overseas but, you know, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to survive over there. Really? Really? I say, well, this is what you need to do. You pray about it. You investigate the church. You make your decision on where you're going to go or not. And then you let God provide for you. Why? Because he says he will. Now, what if that seminary student were to say, well, what if I don't get paid enough? What if, what if a seminary student said that to you? Well, what counsel would you give them? Would you say, well, you're probably right. God's probably lied to you in his word. He's not going to fulfill his promise. Soon you'll have used up all your savings. You'll be starving and begging in the street. You'll probably die. I'm sure of it. 
Yeah, don't trust God. As a matter of fact, I'd worry about it and make sure you cover your bases because after all, you got to be in control. You know, you expect that from a baby Christian, but not from a graduate of the master seminary. My counsel is always the same. God will provide for you if he calls you to go anywhere. So first determine on whether or not you, God's calling you to go there. Then just trust him. I had one seminary student who off he went to another country. And, you know, I gave him that same advice and he said, okay, I'm going to trust God. And he did. And they weren't paying him off. And he was scrimping by and he started digging into his savings and he was scrimping by. And pretty soon they cut out everything in their budget. They stopped enjoying all those little small, little frugal indulgences like eating out and doing things that they had done before. They were just down to the bare thing, eating the most least expensive things. They were still falling into that financial ruin, it appeared. But they kept entrusting themselves to God. They kept praying, remembering God's promises, and laboring hard in the ministry. And then the wife became pregnant. And now there was going to be another mouth to feed, along with the expenses, with having a baby, and the temptation to worry was increased because now they have more needs. And so he just was working with his budget and realized, man, it's down to such, it's such a lean, mean machine. It's it. He'd gone to an elder meeting and the elder said, you know, how are you doing? He says, well, you know, we're, we're scraping by. I mean, all our needs are met and, but you know, we're scraping by. He says, I've been working on my budget and he threw it down and said, you know, this is where, this is where we're at. And the elder said, wow, we aren't paying you enough. We're going to give you a raise and then we're going to retroactively pay you for all the months we weren't paying you enough. Now, who did that? God did that. God did that. God did it and he did it for their good because they needed to learn to trust in him. They needed to learn, as the song says, Jesus never fails. He never fails. You think God would call somebody to the gospel ministry and then abandon them? Then you don't know God. You don't know the word of God. And your faith is dead. God always provides for those he calls into ministry. He cannot fail. He is the God who cannot lie. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 37. In verses 23 through 25, it reads, The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. We could just all write down right now, all those people, all those faithful gospel servants of Christ we know, write down all the names of those we know who right now are starving and begging in the street. There aren't any. 
Because God cannot break his word. Now, they might not have as much as they want. They may not be able to, you know, have their their house and their cars and their ski jet. But Jesus never fails. If God were ever to break one of his promises, it would ungod him. And so whatever ministry he's calling you into, however inadequate you may feel that you are and low on resources, Christ is adequate enough for you. His grace is sufficient for you. And he will provide for you. And just to teach you a lesson, he'll probably wait till the very last second. That's what he does in my life. He says, oh, no, you're good at preaching other people. Let's just wait to the very last end. And then right when I'm kind of like, okay, Lord, it's uh, five minutes away, then it happens. It's like, oh, praise God. So you need to leave here today pursuing God's purpose and saving you, partnering with others in ministry, plan to share the gospel with people more than once, pray for laborers to be sent out into the harvest, prepare to be persecuted, place your trust in Christ to provide for you. And remember, Jesus never fails. He never fails. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. What a great text it is, as it just gives us the whole gamut of principles we need to do any ministry, no matter what degree. Father, you are a good God. And in your word, there are treasures, treasures to hold on to, to ponder, to meditate and live out. Father, help us all at Calvary Bible Church to be more faithful, to put these things into practice. And Father, if there is somebody here right now who doesn't know you, they know they don't know you, They know they don't love you. They know, Father, that hell is waiting unless they repent. Father, help them to realize that today is the day of salvation, that Christ died on the cross for sinners, that he commands all men everywhere to repent, and if they repent and trust only in Jesus to save them, they will be saved. They will be transformed. They will be born again. You will give them your Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts and turn them into gospel ministers in whatever sphere you have chosen for them. Father, help us to be the kind of church that models your manual for harvesting souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.